Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. It's in your bulletins too. Um, but we're going to look at a couple other verses from Isaiah 65 beyond just what's printed in the bulletin. Before we read that, let's pretend something for just a minute. Let's pretend that this past week you received a phone call from Perry Christie. You know who that is, right? The Prime Minister of the Bahamas. And pretend it was really him and it was not a phone scam, you know. And he pretend he called to tell you, the Bahamas has one extra island that it doesn't need and they would like to give it to you. That would be pretty good news, right? That would make for a pretty exciting Christmas. I mean, you'd have quite the answer when Jim came to you and said, so what did you get for Christmas? That would be pretty good news, but wait, there's more. They're not only going to make you this island's owner, they're actually going to make you its ruler. You are going to be the sole authority of a new independent nation in the warm waters of the Caribbean. This is pretty good, right? I mean, if we're going to daydream about something, it might as well be something like this, right? That would be pretty cool. That would be a fantastic opportunity for a lot of reasons, really. Um, But it would come also with at least some level of uh, responsibility as well. See, one of the, one of the, and it would be cool, actually. I mean, one of the best parts about being the ruler of this new island nation is that you get to create it all from scratch. There's a, a new country, and you get to shape it however you desire. You would get to design the flag, Right? You'd get a seat at the table at international events. You might even get to have your own Olympic team. You know? You could be on it. What 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 would its government and its economy look like? You would get to decide that. What rights and privileges would you give your citizens? What duties would you require of them? It could be anything you want it to be. What kind of country would you design if you could start from scratch and build anything you wanted? What would you create? Well, in Isaiah chapter 65, we have sort of something like that going on. We, see how, we get to see what God's answer to that question is. It was as if the prime minister of the Bahamas called God and asked him if he wanted to start a new nation. A whole new world, really. And we get to, we get to see what God would create. So, in Isaiah 65, beginning at verses, verse 17, and reading through the end of the chapter. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the old man will live to be a hundred years old. And the sinner, a hundred years old, (laughs) shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit, and they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, For they shall be the offspring of the blessing of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the dust dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's Isaiah 
Isaiah's word from God about the new heavens and the new earth that he's going to create. So I used to have this old red Jeep. Maybe some of you remember my old red Jeep. It was a difficult car. It didn't do very many things well. I mean, maybe you could just say Jeep at that point. It didn't do many things well, so to speak. But the one thing that it could do was drive up into the mountains. I mean, and it could really do that. Uh, you could, it could claw its way up through roads and through holes that other, other vehicles wouldn't even dream of accessing. And there was this one little pass that I used to especially enjoy going in the old red Jeep up on a narrow little trail not far from Bogus Basin. There's a little tiny break in the trees. It's pretty small. If you're looking in the wrong direction as you go through, you will miss the break in the trees. But from this break in the trees, if you stop there and look out, you can see row after row after row of mountain peaks fading off into the haze as far as the eye can see. And the, the view from there, I mean, you must be able to see on a good day 40 miles off into the distance. And there, there are so many rows of mountains that they, they become difficult to differentiate at a certain point. I mean, it's really stunning. It's really beautiful. I used to like to just stop at that point in that little break in the trees and look out and soak it in for a while. It didn't even feel real. You know, it's one of those places where you, you feel like your eyes are fooling you because it's too beautiful. But it was real. And it was amazing. And I think that's kind of what Isaiah is seeing and writing about here in this chapter, in Isaiah 65. It's as if God has taken him up to the mountain top and the highest mountain in the world. And from there he can see out into the future. And as he looks out to the north, he sees row after row after row of God's plan. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And it's beautiful what he sees. It's a world where people are glad and they rejoice forever, according to verse 18. Think of all the reasons we have to not rejoice, both in our lives and in the world. We don't have to search our memory banks very long to remember what pain and sorrow feel like. In our pasts, there are lists of people and places and songs and even tastes that can bring tears to our eyes. I had one this past week. I tasted something that my grandmother used to make, and uh, it brought tears to my eyes. Well, in God's new world, those things will not come to mind anymore, according to verse 17. And then look at verse 20. If few things can bring more sadness and anxiety and disorientation than living in a world where the, clo- the people closest to us are always at risk of dying. But in God's new world, that doesn't happen anymore. That's what he says. And some of us know, know firsthand how oppressive economic instability can be. Verses 21, 22, and 23 talk about that. And economic instability can sometimes be as scary and destructive as physical danger. But we learn here in those verses that God's new world is a place of peace and prosperity. We learn in verse 25, we see, that one of the, we see in verse 25 one of the richest and most soul-gratifying images in the whole Bible. The wolf and the lamb and the lion and the ox and yes, even the serpent will dwell in peace. Both with each other and with humanity. That's the world that God's going to create one day. And Isaiah was able to see it as he, as he stood on the mountaintop and looked out into the future. And we get to see it. At least something of a description of it here in Isaiah 5, 65 today. There's kind of a problem that arises at this point. There's a, there's a problem. There's, something, there's a monkey wrench thrown into this. Didn't God already create this? 
I mean, if Prime Minister Christie actually called you, I would assume that would be your first time actually creating a nation from scratch, right? I mean, I, don't want to, I know that's an assumption. There may, it may not be true of everyone here. But see, in this case, God has already created a world. And he created, yeah, he created, he created the whole thing, you know. That's why the new world of the future in verse 17 is called new. Because it's replacing the old one. But the language in Isaiah 65 is not describing the creation of something that's never been before seen. After all, wolves and lambs and lions and oxen and houses and vineyards and infants and old men are already a thing, right? I mean, none of that is new. He's not describing something that doesn't exist. Instead, the newness in Isaiah 65 is describing God fixing a broken world. It's fixing what's here. It's a reboot of the original version, only this time with new hardware. And it's guaranteed to be error-free. That, of course, I think this really raises, all that raises the question, kind of the tension in the passage, is why does God need to recreate the world at all? I mean, didn't he get it right the first time? The first chapters of the Bible tell us that the world was once good. These heavens and earth were once free from the kinds of people and places and songs and tastes that bring tears to our eyes with profound sorrow. It's, this was once a place that was free from tensions between wolves and lambs and lions and oxen and serpents. Economic stability wasn't a thing. And death didn't linger over and around and under and in us. But what happened? What, what, what messed everything up? Why, why does God have to fix the world? I mean, didn't he get it right the first time? Well, see, what happened was that, according to the Bible, creation turned against its creator. Earlier in chapter 65, verse, the first seven verses of, six, of chapter 65, Isaiah vividly describes what this, what this looks like. Listen to Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 7. This is God speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. They followed after their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. All that is describing um, uh, worshiping other gods. That's all, those are all things that people in, the, in this culture would have done to worship gods that were not this god. They say, keep to yourself. And do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. There is a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me that I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me in the hills, and I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds." These seven verses describe a people who are trying to purge God from the world. They want to live and love and work and even worship, but they don't want God to, be, to have any part in it. You see how they, in verse, I mean, the silliest part is in verse 5, they describe themselves as too holy for God. In their minds, they've switched places with him. 
As they see it, he has some catching up to do as far as they're concerned. They are the creators now. And they're making worlds after their own imaginations. They try to shape the people around them after their own image. They want to worship whatever makes them happy. And they want to be worshipped too. They need to be told how wonderful they are. That's how they keep up the facade of their divinity. Anyone who challenges or threatens their importance, their centrality to the world must go, even God himself. I think that's that's an attitude, a mindset that's as old as humanity, and it continues even today. We We do the exact same thing. If we're asking what the problem is in the world, why does God have to recreate the world? Didn't he get it right the first time? We should admit that we are the problem. I mean, I'm not the entire problem. I mean, there are, after all, other people who have the same kinds of flaws and sins that I do. But I'm contributing to the problem. The number of times when my flaws and sins have made other people miserable is not a small list. I can remember plenty of times when I have been blinded by my own selfishness. I can remember plenty of times when my foolishness has put other people's, not just their happiness, but even their lives at risk. And I bet you have similar memories. This problem is common to us all. If we're willing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, we have to admit that we are the problem with the world. I mean, we are. However, we don't like this idea, and we spend a lot of time trying to persuade ourselves that it's not the case. It would be much more pleasant to think of the problem as out there. The problem's over there somewhere. If only this would change. You know, ISIS or something like that. If only this would change. Or if only he would change. Or if only she would change. If only my boss or my spouse or my parents, if only my parents would do this and this and this, then the world would be great, right? I mean, we all have what we could call, we could put it in quotes, a perfectly reasonable plan for world improvement. You know, we all have one. It's, it's, it's written up in a document in their 27 8 by 10 colored glossy photographs attached with lots of explanations about how our plan would, in fact, change the world for the better. We have charts and graphs and statistics to support it. If only everybody would do all the things that I think they should do, this world would be awesome, Right? We all have a plan for world improvement. If only one, everyone would just dot, dot, dot. But here's the thing. In all of our plans, we are generally reasonable, good, and pleasant kinds of people, right? In my, in my, world, in my plan for world improvement, uh, it involves a lot of other people changing. I'm an, I'm generally, I, I generally think well, right? And I generally like all the best things. Um, and I think everyone else should think like me and love the things I love. And so we, so we don't need to change, right, in our plans for world improvement. I mean, not as much as they do anyway. Maybe I need to change some, but not as much as they do. And this kind of bending the truth and overlooking a few small things is as old as humanity. I think we all know that. But the truth is this. I haven't just seen other people be selfish or do dangerous and miserable things. I've done them too. It's hard to admit that. But the fact is, we're the problem. So, okay, how do we try to solve the problem? You know, God creates, so he's going to create a new heavens and earth. What happened to the old one? Didn't he get it right? No, we, we, we messed it up. How do we try to solve this problem? We all try to solve the problem 
by recreating our world without the power and presence of God. We all try to do that. We try to recreate the world without the power and presence of God. And I think we do this in at least two ways. The first way we try to recreate the world without God is by trying to change our circumstances. We do this in a number of ways, and there are entire industries built around helping us try to change our circumstances. For example, go to Barnes & Noble or Winco or any place that sells magazines and just have a browse through the magazine section. The overwhelming majority of magazines are selling us some version of a better life. They're overwhelming. This is, I mean, 90% of magazines are, here's how you can have all of of your wildest dreams. If only you just did this. If only I was just a bit more fit or artistic. If I only owned this or traveled there. If only I had this experience or sharpened my skills at doing that. Then things would change enough that I would be happy. I'd be always happy if only I did that. That's what the magazines sell us. And we go and we buy them, right? Or if you want a real, a real life, real time, sobering reality check, just go home and have a look at your budget. Here's an old saying that I just made up. This is it. Bank statements never lie. Doesn't that sound like it should be an old saying? Bank statements never lie. Try it out. Glance through some old, just pick up a random bank statement, credit card statement, and ask. go through the list of things that you spent money on and ask yourself, how much of this was spent on trying to create the good life? And what is the, good, what is the image of the good life that I'm, that I'm aiming at, that I'm trying to create? After all, bank statements never lie, right? That's an old saying. So the first way we try to create, we try to fix our world and, and create it without God in it is by trying to change our circumstances. The second way is by trying to flee from our circumstances. It's an understandable reaction. I mean, it really makes a lot of sense. If we don't like where we are, why not go somewhere else, right? I mean, if if a new place, I mean, if where you are, if your job, if your spouse, if your friends are the problem, why not get new ones? Why not get a new job, a new spouse, new friends? I mean, it makes some sense. But here's the problem. Trying to change our circumstances, doesn't, trying to flee from them, doesn't really solve the problem. This past week, I read a story about a very great, but a very flawed man who left home to go on a journey. And I'll just read you part of the story I thought was really pungent. It's really powerful. I think it perfectly describes us, too. Here's part of his story. One thinks of him kissing his wife goodbye, packing his bags, and setting off. One thinks of how he left his world behind to go to Connecticut. And yet at the same time, he did not leave his world behind because, of course, no one ever can. You can kiss your family and your friends goodbye and put miles between you, but at the same time, you carry them with you in your heart and in your mind and in your stomach. Because you do not just live in a world, but a world lives in you. You are a world. All men are worlds in their time with their whiskers on their chin, some of them, their clean shirts, their steel-rimmed glasses, their freshly polished shoes. As surely as each of them brought a toothbrush with him, he also brought with him his loves and his hates, his fears of death and his fears of life, his anxieties, his longings, his pride, his dark doubts. Each one carried 
his world on his back in the way that a, a snail carries its shell. You see, I, I think, unfortunately, running away doesn't actually solve the problem. Some people in this room can confirm that. We're not any better at fleeing our circumstances than we are at changing them. Sometimes we can change or we can escape some things, but we can't shake the real problem. Because after all, we are the, we are the real problem. So it shouldn't surprise us when trying to recreate the world without God's power or presence doesn't work. Because that's, after all, where the, the problem of humanity began in the first place. Humanity has been trying to create a world without God from the beginning. And after we've accomplished that to some measure, we're shocked at how ugly the world can be. Okay, we've got a problem. We're the problem. We try to solve the problem. We can't solve the problem. How does God try to solve the problem? The good news is that God does not leave us. He doesn't leave it to us to fix the world. He himself is at work. And he has been at work since the beginning. Even though humanity has been more inclined to oppose his work than embrace it, he is not discouraged. And he continues to push back against the problem of evil. This past week, uh, related, in a reading related to Christmas, I read a wonderful description of what God has been doing. I'll read it to you. Listen to this. God intends to put the world back together to make things right. He created a harmonious world, a world of righteousness and order and peace. Sin has spoiled that, and yet the Creator did not leave the world to its own devices. He didn't turn away from the world. Instead, he set about a long-range plan of repairing it. The whole Bible is about God's dealing with the problem of evil. He doesn't deal with it as the philosophers do, trying to explain the origin of evil. He deals with it practically, by overturning it, by turning evil into good, by destroying evil. That's why God called Abraham. That's why he brought Israel out of Egypt. That's why he brought them to the promised land. That's why he raised up David and made a covenant with his house. Why he raised up prophets like Elijah and Elisha to call his people to repentance. That's why he drove Israel into exile. And it's why he brought them back from exile. That's why he sent his son into the world to redeem it. That's Yahweh's whole plan and purpose in the world is to deal with the world's evil, injustice, violence, and oppression, and to form a people, us, who will share that mission in the power of the Spirit. I think that summarizes it beautifully. God didn't walk away from the world of darkness and death. Instead, he dove into it. And he pushed back, and he created, he's, he's been creating space for light and real life. He's like a master surgeon, carving away at the cancer of sin from the souls of people. One by one. It's a slow process. It takes a lifetime to mend us. To recreate us into what we're meant to be. But it takes even longer to recreate the whole world. But God is patient and he is persistent. And he who began this good work will complete it. In the middle section of Isaiah 65, you can read it later if you want. In verses 8 to 16, God describes creating a new people who are blessed. They form a sharp contrast with the people in verses 1 through 7 who have forsaken God and followed their own way. These new people will eat and drink and rejoice, Isaiah writes, because of what God has done for them. His creation of the new heavens and the new earth has already begun, and these are the citizens of that new kingdom. That's us. That's us. 
and across uh, in other people, of course, across time and space. But the new creation has already begun in those who know our failures and who cringe at our histories. Those of us who have no choice but to turn to Jesus and ask him to rebuild our lives and our souls. If that's you, then God is putting the world back together, not only around you, but in you and through you. That's what he's doing right now. Sure, our lives don't always look very good. And I am more than aware that the church has not always or even often looked or sounded or acted like it should. We might not look like much. We might not look like much. We might not always feel the part. But that's how the kingdom of God has always worked. Not many of us are wise. Not many of us are powerful. None of us could be mistaken for royalty. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I want to ask, Does Jesus seem foolish to you? Do his cross and his people seem weak? I mean, that's not really very surprising to me. I mean, it's not surprising to me. It's all seemed foolish to many people over the centuries. It's all seemed weak. But isn't it more foolish to continue to try to recreate your world in your own wisdom and strength and power? Isn't that more foolish? I mean, I think, from my, as, as I see it, you can only slam your head against that wall so many times before it becomes absurd. Turn to Jesus and admit that you are part of the problem and ask him to rebuild you, rebuild the world in you, around you, and through you. He will do that if you ask him. And if you are one of the people who has given up on recreating the world in your own image, if instead you are asking Jesus to solve this world's problems both in you and around you, then have joy. The patient, persistent God is at work. He he has already begun to change the world, including you. I know it doesn't always feel like it. I know that. Believe me, I know it doesn't always feel like that. But his work is already bearing fruit in your soul, and in your life. Rest in that and continue to look to him. I'd like to finish just by reading Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 again. But this time, hear Isaiah's view from the mountaintop as a promise. Listen to it as a promise, as a commitment from God himself. This is not a daydream. This is not buying a magazine and wishing This is not sitting there patiently by the phone waiting for Prime Minister Christie to call. It's a promise from God and he's already begun to do it. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant 
who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner, uh, uh, the sinner a hundred years old before he shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. For they shall not labor in vain, nor bear children for calamity. For they will, shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat, the, eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen.